Good to see all of you and to be back with you. I know the last two times I was here, there's only two weeks in between, uh, and it's been a little bit longer, so it's felt a little out of rhythm, but it's still once a month. I will let you know that on my way back, or when I'm leaving tonight, I'm going to Atlanta, um, so I'm not going to be able to spend a whole lot of time talking with people. Uh, I've been seeing on the news that there's those riots, and I brought my crowbar with me and stuff, so I figured I'd be an opportunist and get involved in some of that. Uh, actually, what, that was a joke. What's really happening is we sold our house that, down there, and I need to pick up some stuff from the house uh, before it, we close on it, and so I just have to go down there and pick, fill up the van again with some stuff. So uh, that is why I'm going down there. Whenever I worked as a paralegal, um, I worked in a law office that shared offices with other people that had different practices, and one of those practices was a mediator. And I remember whenever I'd, I'd be working uh, at the computer doing different things, there would be families that would walk down the hallway and I'd see them pass through in the entryway. Uh, that had like tense looks on their faces. You knew that they had to have some kind of mediation happening because there was some family drama or something like that. And uh, whenever that mediator wasn't mediating things, he would sometimes come up to the law office and just chit chat with some of us. And uh, there was one occasion when he told me that the purpose of mediation is to understand one another to arrive at a new position. And so he tries to get two sides together and tries to get them both to be open and honest about some things so that they can understand each other, so that perhaps they can work better together moving forward. Since becoming a Christian in April, it'll be 15 years for me. I've spent a lot of time talking with people in my generation that grew up going to church and gotten a lot of valuable insights from their perspectives. I've also spent a lot of time talking with people in older generations and gaining a lot from the perspectives that they've had to share as well. And one of the things that I've found in those conversations that I've had is that there's a lot of differences between the generations, and sometimes those differences lead to some tension. And I think there's value in discussing and talking about the differences between the generations for the purpose of learning how to understand each other better, for the purpose of better unity, things like that. Um, if you were to ask, if you maybe think in the last 20 years, have you known of any local churches that have split or any local churches that have had a lot of tension? Maybe you've moved and come from some of those kinds of places, and you were to ask yourself, well, what were some of the causes of those divisions? And perhaps at times it would be a failure to understand one another. And I think based on things that when I talk on the phone or I get emails from people across the country, like preacher friends or whatever, that there needs to be more discussion on older generation, my generation, and learning how to work together and not be against one another. And so I'm preaching this lesson not because I've heard anything about you guys, but this is more of a prophylactic kind of thing. That, you know, like prophylactic, you take vitamin C so you don't get sick. This lesson is just putting some things out there so that these divisions or this strife or this tension, no matter how benign those things may seem, would be mitigated. 
And so the first thing that I want to do in this lesson, and this is going to be the longest point in this lesson, so when I eventually get to the point when I say the second thing I want to talk about is this, don't think that it's going to be equally weighted. This first point's the longest one. I want to spend some time contrasting the older generation with the younger generation. And these contrasts, there's always going to be exceptions to it. These are generalizations from the perspective that I see from conversations that I've had with lots of different people. And so here, here's one contrast. Is one generation likes to sing older songs, older hymns, and then the newer generation likes to sing newer hymns, newer songs, things like that. I, since I didn't grow up learning any of these songs, it took me a while to figure out what ones were the old ones and what ones were the new ones, because they were all new to me. But the people in the younger generation might cite a passage like Psalm 98, verse 1, where it says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Bible tells us to sing new songs. Do you suppose that our God is, you know, He's really great and everything, but we can really reduce how great He is to about 35 different songs? Do you think those are adequate enough to praise Him? Well, if we learned a million songs, that still wouldn't be enough. But if God is so infinitely great, wouldn't it make sense that we should be trying to find new ways of praising Him? And I, I didn't know that you guys were having a new song training tonight, so that was kind of cool that I stumbled into that. And there was a lot of you that were, wanted to be part of that, so that's a commendable thing. But an older generation might say, well, the hymns from the 1700s, the hymns from the 1800s, those lyrics are a lot more rich than a lot of the new hymns, and there's probably some degree of truth to that, but there are some good new hymns as well. But an older generation might cite a principle that's found in Philippians 3, verse 1, where Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. It is safe for you. If there's a hymn like Holy, 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 that's like a timeless hymn every generation can sing. That song at one point was a new one. And to sing that song again and again and again, there's a value in that. Because it's true, it's helpful. So what's the harm in being reminded of things that are true? But at the same time, what's the harm of also mixing in some new songs? And I know that you have to go through the difficulty of learning those things. But you see how both sides have a point here. Here's another contrast is doctrinal preaching versus what I, whatever we could call non-doctrinal preaching. I don't like that characterization, but I think you know what I mean by that. The word doctrine just means teaching. So everything in the Bible in that sense is teaching. But the way that oftentimes uh, maybe we've discussed uh, that word doctrine is what, what, at least what I mean by when I say the word doctrine is the kind of preaching that's about a lot of the check mark things. And by the way, quick little side point, are there some commandments that are checkmarkable? Like the book of Numbers, 1 through 10. Number the people. Check mark. We have done it. Aren't you glad that there are some commands that are checkmarkable because you know that you've done them? So there's, I'm not saying that in a demeaning kind of way. And then there's other commands that are more spectrum-like where it's like, well, I'm not fully done with my jealousy. I need to get over it a little bit more and all that sort of thing. So there's two different kinds of commands. Okay, but what I mean by doctrinal sermons are the ones that are more checkmarkable. Baptism, instrumental music, how we collect the, the treasury money, 
how the treasury money gets used, sponsoring church arrangement, all those sorts of things that you can know if you're doing it or not doing it. And so the older generation, I think from what I've understood, conversations I've had with folks like Sewell Hall have said that the older generation emphasized more of the doctrinal kind of stuff. Well, what would be the reason for that? And this is what I've heard from folks is that in the older generation, there was a big concern for evangelism. And that we wanted to make sure that all the members of a congregation knew where the passages on baptism were. We wanted to know where the passages were on why we don't use instruments and things of that nature. And so in order to equip the congregation to know how to talk to their friends, we need to talk about those things. And furthermore, if we never talk about the things that make us distinct from all the other churches in this city, we've got to be reminded of those things. Otherwise, what are we doing that's so different? And so my generation grows up, and I didn't grow up in the, going to church and all that kind of thing, but people around my age grow up, and they hear a lot of preaching that's doctrinal. And then they, they hear all of this sort of thing, and then they go, well, what about the commands that are more like on a spectrum? Like, how come we don't talk about envy or jealousy or gossip like we ought to? I want to grow in my holiness. So then they start studying all those kinds of things, assuming that the older generation neglected those kinds of things. And we'll say more about that in a little bit. <clears throat> so maybe on the optimistic side, my generation wants to talk more about those other things because we want to grow in our character. Uh, the, the, the more pessimistic view on that is that my generation is too scared of looking different. And so let's just talk about the things that everybody else would agree with that at least believes in a Bible or believes in the Bible. And so I think for some people in my generation, it has more to do with being ashamed of some of the things that the Bible teaches. But that's one of the other differences, doctrinal versus non-doctrinal preaching. Here's another one. Is wrath versus grace. I, just last week, I read a book by R.C. Sproul called The Holiness of God, and there was a quote in that book that struck me where he talks really about the age that we live in. Even though the book was written a while ago, it still seems pretty relevant. But in, in the book, he said this, Sermons stressing the fierce wrath of a holy God aimed at impenitent human hearts do not fit with the civic meeting hall atmosphere of the local church. Gone are the sermons that stir the soul to moral anguish, Ours is an upbeat generation with the accent on self-improvement and a broad-minded view of sin. I think that strikes me as being pretty accurate with how people like to not talk about grace or wrath, but they like to talk about grace. Uh, you, you, sometimes you'll drive past a church building and it says, like, grace something church. I've never seen a wrath something church. Uh, when I was doing a gospel meeting one time in Indiana, there was, uh, I pointed it out in a sermon, just the difference between older generation, more wrath emphasized, and the newer generation, more grace emphasized. And there was a, a guy that used to be a preacher that had done, started doing some other kind of work, and he pulled me aside after the sermon, and he said, do you know why the older generation focused on wrath so much? And I said, no, please tell me your perspective on this. He said, well, imagine living right after World War II when there's a lot more video, there's a lot more cameras, there's a lot more pictures of the atrocities that happened in the concentration camps. And then this stuff gets publicized all across the world. 
Do you think in the, in the context, context of world history that there were people that actually, and perhaps rightly so, were comforted by a God that had wrath? And so if they knew that these things are going to be judged one day, there would be a, a sense in which there would be some comfort from, from knowing that, not not because you're superior to all those other people and you're high-minded in that kind of way, but because that generation saw real wickedness that perhaps my generation hasn't seen so much. But people around my age grow up and they hear hell, fire, brimstone. Hell, fire, brimstone. And the message that they get is I'm yo-yoing in my salvation. I'm driving my car, and I have an angry thought, and if I get in a car accident, I'm for sure going to hell if I didn't have time to repent of it, and I'm in and out and in and out all the time. By the way, there's an in and out coming to Franklin. Um, make sure you go there when that opens up. But you're, you're constantly in and out of salvation, and you're always having to be worried about all those kinds of things. So I've known some people that are around my age that said that they grew up in such a rules-oriented, wrath-oriented kind of atmosphere that they didn't feel like they understood God's grace until they moved away and went to college and started being exposed to some other ways of thinking about things. And so do you see that the emphasis of either of these things, let's say we just emphasize wrath. Well, if we never talk about God's grace, that's part of the Bible too. But if my generation only talks about God's grace, but we never talk about God's wrath, then we're missing part of the scripture as well. How about we learn to love everything that it says? And so that's another one of those contrasts. And, and uh, this next one kind of goes along with these other ones as well is an emphasis in preaching the New Testament as opposed to preaching the Old Testament. We know that 2 Timothy 3 says all Scripture is profitable, all of it. Even the books that sometimes get neglected, whatever book of the Bible that you've personally been neglecting is probably the one that you need the most because you're least familiar with it. So in any given local church, there needs to be studying of books that are neglected. But... Why is it the case that perhaps in the older generation there was a larger emphasis on the New Testament, perhaps to the neglect of the Old Testament? Where else in the Bible are you going to get clear instructions on exactly how you're saved? We know like Isaiah 6, Isaiah had to have a God quake and he had to realize that God is weightier than him. And so you have to humble yourself before your, the, the coal can touch your mouth and all. We get pictures of that kind of thing in the Old Testament. But where do we learn the moment of salvation? Where do we learn how a church treasury is supposed to be used? Where do we learn the roles of elders, preachers, and deacons, and the church structure and all that sort of thing? If you're neglecting the New Testament, you're not going to get clear teaching on things like that. But what about the younger generation? Well, you know, the Old Testament's like 75% of the Bible or something like that. And uh, I, I know a lot of younger preachers that feel like they didn't grow up learning a lot of the Old Testament and the amount of excitement they get from learning the Old Testament. And the road to Emmaus, when Jesus is walking with a couple of the disciples, it says in Luke 24, verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Uh, as, as probably all of us have imagined, that walk, which I think was like two or four hours, something like that, imagine Jesus opening up the scripture to them and explaining all these things that were talking about him. 
And later in that same chapter, in verse 32, they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us the Scriptures? What was it that, that, that got these people excited and enthusiastic? It wasn't by neglecting the Old Testament. It was by seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. And so there's a lot of young folks that are really interested in that sort of thing. I'll loop back to that if I remember to in a little bit. But notice the, the last contrast for this first part of this lesson is uh, being formal as opposed to informal. And I think this is something that just generally, societally, we've seen where you imagine those people, like I'm reading a book right now, listening to a book on the Wright brothers, and even when the Wright brothers were like working in Kitty Hawk and stuff, they were still wearing suits and all this sort of thing, and they're doing like blue-collar blue kind of work and stuff. But our, our culture as a whole has largely become less formal. And maybe part of that is especially uh, accentuated by what's happened with the Rona recently, where you, people are working from home, and like, as long as you've got a nice shirt on, you can still be wearing pajama bottoms or whatever. Just don't let the Zoom people see that, and you're going to be fine. Uh, but the older generation emphasizes more the formality. And some of the arguments that I've heard from that, for that, go to like Malachi chapter 1 verse 8, where Malachi says, when you offer blind animals and sacrifices, that not evil. And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? So you've got people that, I've heard people in the older generation cite this passage that you're not going to bring a lame animal to a governor, You'd want to present something, but you're bringing something less than that to the Lord. And so by extension, it's reasoned from this passage that if we would go view the, see the president or something, we would want to dress up. So when we see the Lord when we're assembling or whatever, we're communing with the Lord, then we would want to dress up for that. It would make sense. But you notice that this is not an explicit command to do that. It would be an inference from this passage. And then I know younger people who look at other passages and they say, like in Mark 12, verse 38, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. You've got the scribes who like to distinguish themselves by how they look and how they dress and all that sort of thing. And by the way, a lot of the passages in the Bible that talk about modesty are talking about economic modesty. That I'm not going to have all these costly things that I'm wearing to show off. And so there's a lot of young people that want to be careful about not doing that sort of thing. And so you see how both sides have a point, but there's no explicit command in the Bible on this one. It, it's just different preferences and different cultures. Now, these examples that I'm bringing up right now, I could bring up some ones that would be more dangerous to bring up. But for the purposes of this lesson, I'm staying in a more safer zone here. And what sometimes happens is a younger person will say, well, there's not been enough grace, so I'm just going to preach on grace all the time and ramrod that, and you've got to talk about it. And an older person might say, well, I'm going to ramrod wrath. I think there's value in stepping back and just saying, do you guys see what's happening between the generations? Just observe that. And ask yourself the question, what are some potential problems that this could lead to if we do not have good attitudes towards one another? These last two points are going to be briefer. One potential problem from this is pride and arrogance towards one another. 
that both sides can think the other is totally wrong, being smug towards one another. I've heard young people talk about old codger Christians, and I've also seen young Christians that are really just a bunch of young codgers too because of how they treat and think about older Christians. So young codger can be another term that's a good one. So um, younger people can sometimes look at the older generation and think anything they believed or did is outdated and invaluable. Uh, not valuable, whatever. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Surprised by Joy, wrote about chronological snobbery. And uh, here's a quote about that. Chronological snobbery, the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age, and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. Uh, my generation can look at older folks and go, you guys were the barbaric ones. You guys were the ones who had debates. You guys, like, debated stuff which I'm now looking at as more noble than I used to because at least those folks cared about truth and they wanted to try to figure out what other people believed and expose them. When I was a new Christian, I thought that idea of debate was an ugly thing and I see it as more of a noble thing now as long as you kept a good attitude about it. But if you're a younger person, do you suppose that older folks, like, do you suppose that they've read the Bible longer than you have? And they, they went through that whole process of trying to find a spouse and maybe not finding one. And they, they, they can actually relate to you in ways that you maybe don't think that they could. They've been through a lot more than you have. I'm reminded of Leviticus 19.32 that says, You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. I have seen too many young Christians have ungodly attitudes towards people in the older generation. And it's, uh, it's ironic that my generation talks about love and acceptance and things like that, but yet the attitude towards older people is not at all what God has commanded us to have. But on the other, on the other hand, the older people, could they have pride and arrogance towards the younger generation? Where, well, we've never heard that view before. That, so if the older generation focused a lot on doctrinal stuff, and then the younger generation comes along and says, well, there's these other things in the Bible too, would it stand to reason that folks in the younger generation may have made some observations from Scripture that you've never seen before? Because you've been busy thinking about these things, and they've been busy thinking about those things. And so if they come and say, hey, like, have you seen this in Scripture before? They're not trying to be rebellious, perhaps. Maybe sometimes they are. But I'm talking about the ones that are not trying to be rebellious. They're not trying to stir up anything. And they say, hey, have you seen this before? Well, no, 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 no. You've lost the spirit of restoration then. The spirit of restoration always says, I want to go back and see things that I haven't seen before. And maybe the old can learn from the young, and the young certainly can learn from the old. So pride and arrogance is a problem there. Grumbling against one another. James 5, verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold the judges standing at the door. Isn't that a scary picture? We start having pride and arrogance, and then it manifests itself. Yeah, those old Christians, this. And I've, I've seen churches where it's just split off from a bunch of young people start a new church, and the only thing they can talk about is those old codgers, just constantly grumbling about them. Uh, the judge is standing at the door. Like, he can just open up the door and whoosh, you're gone. Another potential problem is division which this is already inherent in this, but this division could be in two stages. 
first stage of division could be assembling without even greeting one another. We're, we're together, and I'm going to huddle up around the people that are just my age, and I'm not going to really talk to those people that are in different age categories and things like that. Jesus said in Matthew 5.47, And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Jesus is saying you should at least be able to greet an enemy of yours. Are we enemies of one another? Are there people in this room that you will not greet? Perhaps because of some of these differences. Stage two division is where you angrily form a new work because of everything that you're not. And it has nothing to do with what you're actually standing for. Those are some potential problems for that. All of those could be expanded on a lot more than we have time to. But final point. What are some solutions, potential solutions to this? One potential solution for this is to avoid elevating your preferences to the place of Scripture. Now, all of the differences that we've talked about, some of them matter more than others do. And some of them are just preferences. So for the ones that are just preferences, consider Luke chapter 18, when Jesus talked about the parable of the rich man, or of the 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 Pharisee and the tax collector that went up to the temple to pray. And uh, the Pharisee says this prayer. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. If a psychologist could sit down with Mr. Pharisee, would Mr. Pharisee have a high self-esteem here? I am a really great guy. And in our culture, we go, that's great that you think so highly of yourself, but this is wicked. How does this guy have a high self-image? Because he can find people that he thinks he's better than. Um, the points of comparison here, he's not an extortioner, he's... Uh, not unjust, he's not an adulterer, and you could argue that when you look at the lives of the Pharisees, those are all the kinds of things that they did, and this guy doesn't even have much of a, of a self-understanding. And so ironically, the people that have the most self-obsession are at the same times the ones that understand themselves the least. But the point that I want to make from this is, do you see what's embedded in this passage? Like, so extortion is that can we prove from the bible that extortion is no bueno we can how about unjust that's also no good adultery for sure no good what about giving tithes of all that you get you should do that too jesus did commend them for that what about this one i fast twice a week how many days were the israelites commanded to fast in in a year once day of atonement and other than that fasting was something that you did situationally. If you lost a son, you would fast. If the, the people were at war, you would fast for the things like if, if you were realizing that you were in sin and it, you, it's a new realization to you, then you would fast. Why fast twice a week? The Old Testament never commands that. Do you see what this guy's doing? I'm going to take some things that the Bible teaches and I'm going to hold firm to those and just as firmly as I hold to those, I'm going to sneak in one of my preferences one of my man-made traditions. So apply that to formal versus informal. The rule in the Bible is that you're modest. 
Are there certain things that you have to wear? Do you have to wear a suit and tie, something like that? It's fine if you want to. If that helps you serve God, if that helps you focus on God, that's fine. But do not elevate your preference to the place of Scripture, like this Pharisee does. So that's one danger. Uh, what about this next one? How about bearing with one another in love? Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, uh, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Notice the language of put on here. What do you put on every day? Uh, the, the clothes that you wear. The clothes that you wear are the first thing that somebody sees about you, notices about you. Put on, clothe yourself with these godly characteristics. And what would ever motivate me to do that? Jesus first demonstrated all of these qualities for me and saved me in part because he had qualities like that and those qualities have changed my life. So then I in turn put those same things on Am I clothing myself with these kinds of things? And in verse 14, love that binds everything together in perfect harmony. If there's a local church that's got a lot of tension, and it's over preferences, and it's over generational things, what do you think would help bind things together? Is loving one another. Like young not dismissing the older, older not making all these bad assumptions towards the younger, and instead, this gets into the last thing. How about discuss things with one another? There's a passage in Leviticus 19 that I don't know why it's not talked about more than it is. When I was in Atlanta, I taught through the book of Leviticus. And chapter 19 of Leviticus has, of all the chapters in the, in the Old Testament that I've taught, it's got to have some of the most richest points of application that I, I personally have seen. And one of the things that it says in Leviticus 19 is, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Don't hate your brother in your heart. Those old codgers, those young whippersnappers, and these people not understanding grace, and those people not understanding wrath, like all these kinds of things that you could be thinking. What, what would help you not hate somebody in your heart? Do you see what it is? It almost reads like it's a proverb. But you shall reason frankly. What value would there be in some younger family at this church asking what some of them old codgers to come over to your house for dinner and say, all right, we don't have the battle wounds that you guys had from the 50s and 60s. Tell me why doctrinal stuff matters to you so much and help me understand why it should matter to me more than it does right now. And could some of those old codgers have some of the young whippersnappers over to their house and say, all right, like, what have you guys learned about grace? What have you guys learned about the Old Testament? What have you guys learned about some of these kinds of ideas that you feel like we've missed? And really just listen to what they have to say. Don't assume that you understand everything of everywhere that they're coming from. Do you suppose that frank conversations like that, and frank doesn't mean that we get ugly with each other, but it's just we're transparent about things. The, this has been my experience. That's been your experience. And do you suppose that in a process like that, there would be less hate and more understanding of one another, and more sharpening of one another. 
It's sad to me, and I understand it to some extent, when people move to a new town and they're looking for which church to assemble with, and they, they want to find out if there's people that are their age. Now, I understand if you've got kids, the kids have need to have other friends of kids and stuff like that. I get that. But, if the, but this is the danger. If you find a church that's got people that are all around your age, here's the danger for you. You only hang out with people your age. Do you suppose that there would be a lot to learn? God designed the family of Christ to be where we're all learning from one another. And we're doing it in a godly way with a godly attitude and just having frank conversation. I can't tell you how much I've been sharpened by talking to older people like Sewell Hall, younger people like Barry Kircheville, so many other people that have helped me with so many things. Proverbs 16.24 says, Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Health to the body of Christ. When we can sit around the dinner table and talk about some of these things, learn from one another, see the weaknesses that you're coming from and the strengths that they have and help each other become more whole and complete in Christ. This church has got a good uh, age spread here. And there's a lot of opportunities here. I don't know what the weekly interactions are in this church, but are you guys leaving a lot of money on the table by not learning from one another? We're about to sing a song and uh, I don't know what the song of invitation is, but whatever that song is, it's meant to encourage anybody here who doesn't have that kind of family in Christ or maybe hasn't been utilizing that kind of family in Christ or has fallen away and not been part of the family like they should be. This is an opportunity to get your life right with God. If you're too nervous to come forward during this invitation song, please don't leave here without talking to somebody here that would want to help you. But if there's anything that we can do for you, please make it known while we stand and while we sing.